your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. My semi-regular feature, What's It Really Like to Be A? I have interviewed everyone from a psychiatrist to a fundraiser, sex worker to beekeeper. Today, what's it like to be a police detective? With me on the lines, a retired detective from the New York Police Department and the author, which is the largest police department in America. And he's the author of three books about what it's like to be a detective, including NYPD Through the Looking Glass. Stories from inside America's largest police department. Vic Ferrari, welcome to work with Marty Nemco. Hi, Marty. How are you? I am well. Thanks for uh, giving me part of your evening. Well, thank you. So when I say the word police, especially in the Bay Area, uh, the idea of bad cops, especially those who treat African Americans worse than others, comes to mind. I know that cops tend to develop, you know, to defend each other. But being as honest as you can be, given the same situation... Is a black person likely to be treated worse than a white or Asian in general? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think cops treat any different ethnic group differently. This isn't the deep south in the 1950s where the local sheriff could shoot someone in the back and throw them in the ditch on the outskirts of town. Cops deal with those who put themselves on the playing field. If it's 2 a.m. and you're meandering around in the back of a 7-Eleven, you're going to get a talking to. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, or Himalayan. But we hear all the, you know, we, the, certainly what the media reports is the Abner Diallo, and you hear the guy who was uh, who died in custody, and you hear you hear a lot about African Americans getting um, what what is reported as uh, unfair, horribly unfair treatment, sometimes resulting in death. Uh, is that all? That can't be just made up. I don't know if it's made up as much as it's polarized. I mean, cops are taught to question those whose behavior or action is out of bounds with the normal society. If your taillight is out and it's 2 a.m. and you're driving around and you get stopped and your car smells like marijuana, and sorry, California, I'm talking before you guys went recreational, you're going to get hassled. I mean, that's just the way it is. So, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but... I don't really think cops go looking for trouble. They want to go home and get paid and retire after 20 or 25 years. But aren't there at least some, you know, in every profession, from physicians to clerks, there are some bad apples. You've you've been at this for a long time. You retired a while ago, but you've been at the game a long time. 
what percentage would you say are bad apples who just, you know, even forgetting about race, who just use excessive force or who are on the take from, from you know, mafia drug dealers or whatever, if, you know, being as honest as you can be, um, what percent would you say are basically straight arrows? Straight arrows? Probably about 85 to 90%. Then you have those, a small percentage that are heavy-handed or like the kid in class that you always thought was a little different and somehow he passed the psychological and got on. And then you have a couple that take the job for selfish reasons that, you know, they're looking at it from a whole different perspective. They're looking to get in there to make money or, you know, whatever their agenda is, which is going to get them fired or jail time. Is the money good? I mean, how, how <laughs> good is the money really? What do you mean, being a cop? Yeah. You know, if you live within your means, you'll be fine. If you don't live, it's like any other person. If you get in over your head, then you should look for another line of work or find a second job. I don't mean that. Do you you get six figures? I mean, you know, what is the, not the starting pay, not the highest ranking cop. Then we'll get to detective in a minute. But what is, if we took all of the, because you know New York, and it's an expensive, like the Bay Area, it's expensive. We took all the cops in New York and we, the NYPD, and we average their salary, what would that be and what kind of benefits would they have? Oh, God. I mean, I'm retired 11 years, 12 years. Mm. I'm old. (laughs) Um, Now they're making close to $100,000 a year in NYPD. I mean, when I got hired, it was like $25,000 a year. Well, yeah, you were 1926, right? (laughs) 87, (laughs) but yeah, close. Um, but, But again, if you live within your means... You should be fine. It's when guys want to keep up with the Joneses where they get in over their heads. And to another point, like when I went into narcotics, I mean, they ran a credit check. I mean, they didn't want anybody going into units where there'd be the temptation of money and drugs that guys were not financially sound. Okay, well, now that's the core. You know, maybe I've watched Serpico too many times. But how many have you heard of cops of any significant percentage? who are on the take, you know, where the mafia or any other drug-dealing entity says, hey, I'll give you 20% of this thing, you, get, you want you turn the other way. You get, how often does that occur? It, it does occur. I mean, when I was a rookie cop, my first precinct was where they filmed Fort Apache the Bronx. Mm. A lot of people think that was the 4-1. They actually filmed it in the 4-2. But when I got hired in 87, you had a lot of the Vietnam guys still around. Mm-hmm. And listen, I'm, I don't want to paint them all with a bad brush because they served our country, but a lot of them came back a lot they weren't right and those guys played by a whole different set of rules and they were a lot of them were into getting the freebies and uh, you know I, I mean in my book i write a story about how my partner and i went to a pizza parlor and the pizza owner said hey have you seen so and so and he said no i haven't seen him and he goes well could you tell him to get in touch with me because he owes me five grand mm-hmm. we're just standing there dumbfounded like why would this guy the summons guy own a pizza guy five grand Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't get involved in it. We didn't touch it. It was none of our business. But, um, I mean, we, there, were, there were signs of things when I was a kid. Okay. And if you were to bet, if you were talking to your mother, and you were, oh, no, you were betting. You were, you were on one of these online betting sites, and you could <laughs> bet on uh, how pervasive cops in New York today in 2019 are being bought off by drug dealers. Uh, what percentage would you, would, would you bet on? Less than one percent. 
Okay. Let's, let's avoid that. I wanted to deal with that up front because that is such the popular perception. I feel like I would be remiss, especially for my listeners here in the Bay Area, if I didn't ask those hard questions first. So I apologize. I, I, no, we, we won't. All right. Well, you know, we all know that most cops are, are good. Are, you know, they're putting their lives on the line. They're getting yelled at. They're getting. I just saw the video of cops, the, 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 uh, the people throwing water balloons on them or not water, but buckets of water and the wow. cops having to have the restraint to walk away and go to their cop cars. That's pretty remarkable. So I don't, I don't, you know, just because I'm asking these disgusting questions doesn't mean I'm not well aware that most cops are trying to do the right thing. But let's turn now to you because this segment is really about what is it really like to be, in this case, a detective. Now, you were a cop and then promoted to detective in the New York Police Department. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Walk me through a typical day in the life of an actual cop and then a typical day in the life of a detective. As a cop... Um, you come into work, you put on your uniform, you look at the roll call, it tells you where you're going to work, you stand attention with 30 other guys, well, NYPD, I mean, each precinct's got 30, 40 guys going out of tour. You're given your assignment, um, you handle your sector, and basically you're chasing a radio. And it can be anything from a barking dog to a homicide. I mean, I, I remember one Friday night, you know, I was walking out of the precinct after a meal, and the girl told me, hey, can you go to this? It looks like a cardiac, and a woman was stabbed to death. You never, it, it's like a roulette wheel. You never know what you're going to get. The action is nonstop. And then suddenly it stops when your tour is over. And that's, that's why a lot of cops drink because it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you're so pumped up. You, you just don't want to go home. You want, you want to talk about it. And that's usually where the guys get together. And, um, detective is a little different. I worked in organized crime, mm-hmm. um, in the auto field. Well, I worked in narcotics and also the auto field. In narcotics, it's, it's the meat and potatoes is buy and bust. You're given pre-recorded buy money. You go out with a sergeant, a lieutenant. A couple undercovers go out. They make their buys. They get back in the car. They give a description. You roll in. You grab the guys. You throw them in a van. And it's like wicked tuna. At the end of the day, when you get your cats and that van is filled, hmm. you go to the precinct, hmm. and then you know the bodies get processed. Wow. Then you interview those guys, and then if they want to talk, then you get search warrants, and then you go for the search warrants. You keep moving up the chain, hmm. you know, to dismantle networks. Mm. Now, you said something surprising, cars. I didn't know organized crime was involved in cars. What's that about? Well, the mafia, I mean, back in the day, ran New York, especially Brooklyn area, with, with uh, and John Gotti's son-in-law, Carmine, was, was a big player in that with, you know, stolen vehicles and chop shops and mm. shipping stolen vehicles out of the country and changing vehicle identification numbers on stolen cars for resale, parts, identity theft. I mean, it's a huge market. Well, now, will you ever, you know, again, I have my knowledge of cops is limited by the damn movies. <laughs> were you actually ever in real danger where your heartbeat was beating a million miles a minute? And you were afraid you were going to you were going to buy the farm? Oh, yeah. A couple of times. One time my partner and I stopped the guy it was on a, a Saturday or Sunday morning, about 10 a.m. And the guy pulled him over a taillight and you could tell he was out clubbing by his clothes and he was all coked up. And I noticed he kept messing around with his waistband so I said hey you know why don't you step out of the car I'm going to show you the taillight no big deal just kind of try I, I thought he had a gun in his waist I was trying to put him at ease and as he got out of the car he did it again so I mm. reached for his waist he reached for his waist and now mm. we're both on the gun Oof. so we're dancing around the car my partner comes running around and I go shoot him <laughs> he Oof. goes what I go shoot him he goes are you sure I go shoot him Wow. my partner took his gun and smacked him in the head with the pistol whipped him and when he hit him in the head, the guy's body just went limp. And as the guy fell down, the gun came right out in my hand. 
Now, were you subject to any scrutiny? Because he didn't shoot at you. You were, you know, yes, he ended up having a gun, but his hand was just in his waist pocket or whatever it was. Did you, what kind of scrutiny did you get? And this was, I'm sure this was early. This was in the 80s or 90s, right? Or 2000s. It was, it was the early 90s. No, I mean, it, it wasn't he was reaching for it. He had it. I okay. mean, the bolt, it was one of those, I, I, to explain to your listeners, it's, if you've ever had like something where you're almost in a car accident or a life or death situation, everything slows down and you say to yourself, I can't lose. Mm. If I lose this, it's over. Mm. Like it's every inch of your body, you're fighting for your life. Mm. And no, there was no scrutiny. I mean, it, it pro- we probably would have faced more scrutiny if we would have shot him. Right, of course. To be perfectly honest with you, and that's probably why my old partner didn't shoot him. Mm. How gun shy, pardon the pun, how gun shy are, you know, we, we hear all the time, you know, you just don't want to be on the news. You know, cops are very afraid, even under legitimate circumstances, of, of certainly shooting, which they should be very careful. How are cops today un? unnecessarily you know are they are they too gun shy and does that hurt the public or is it appropriate that they're being more cautious about about firing their weapon oh of course i mean if you saw what happened in ferguson a couple of years ago and 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 that's not good for society because once cops stop becoming proactive i mean god have mercy on all of us i mean when cops start looking the other way or "Eh, i don't really want to get involved in that and they see something where they can prevent something that they can, you know, like divine intervention. They can get involved in something before it goes to the average citizen. Uh, yeah, cops are gun shy, and it's sad, and accidents do happen, and it is terrible. But what's the other alternative to have the bad guys running around with guns, doing whatever they want? The most it, cops, it, the most cops favor, um, you know, uh, I'm not some big liberal. I'm really a moderate. I really am at my core. But there does seem something crazy about allowing semi-automatic weapons like Uzis and AK-47s to be available, even if you pass the damn you know background check. What the cops, most cops want AK-47s and those semi-automatic weapons and those things legal or were made or made illegal or what? I mean, it, it, it's a slippery slope because when does it end? I mean, there is the right to bear arms, but I also hear what you're saying with these guns that can kill multiple people. I, you know, I'm a cop. I mean, at heart, I am pro-gun. Um, they, they, there have been steps. I mean, and, and it's a farce when they say, well, there's no background check. I mean, I'm a retired cop. I've never been in trouble in my life. And I have to wait five days to get my hands. If I'm going to purchase a gun and I walk into a gun store and it doesn't matter that I'm a retired cop, that's nice. They still call the DEA. They do a background check on me to make sure I'm clean, and there's a five-day wait. So for those of you out there listening think that there's no gun checks, there are. You're listening to work with Marty Nemco. My guest is Vic Ferrari. He is a retired cop and detective. We're talking about what it's really like to be a detective. He's the author of three books on the subject, most notably NYPD Through the Looking Glass, subtitle, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department, because he was, for how many years? 20 years uh, in, yeah, in, in, in NYPD. Okay, so you've written three books on this, on what it's like to be a detective, and you've done book signings. Is there a particular story in one of those books that your audience, when you go to those book signings, that they seem to like best? Yeah, um, there's, there's a book in uh, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. I call it um, The Hansel and Gretel or Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. My old partner worked with a guy that was very lazy. The guy was an amateur magician. Mm-hmm. So here we are in our early 20s, going to bars after work, talking to girls at the bar. 
and this guy is making balloon animals and pulling <laughs> coins out of girls' ears. So we're sitting there getting <laughs> cock-blocked by magic, right? So I used to tell my old partner, I go, is this guy kidding me? He goes, yeah, I wish he took police work as serious, you know, as his magic. magic. Anyway, they get called, they get called to a, uh, a noise complaint. It's in, it's in a basement of a, a, a building. They go down there, it's 2 a.m., they knock on the door. No one answers. They're just about to leave, and my partner realizes there's a second, there's a second apartment in the basement. He goes mm-hmm. to knock. The magician tells him, ah, come on, it's 2 a.m., we made enough noise. Mm-hmm. My old partner still wants to knock. He goes, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. So my old partner goes, all right, cops are cheap and free coffee. He goes, all right, they leave. <laughs> well, what they didn't know was before, behind door number two, the super was selling coke out of the apartment. Mm-hmm. He fell behind on his consignment to these Albanian drug dealers. Mm. So, I mean, drug dealers don't send late notices or what they did was <laughs> they, did an old, they did an old gypsy trick. They brought a good looking girl with them. They knocked on the door. The good looking girl stands in front of the door. You know, the horny super thinks it's some nice looking crackhead that he's gonna, you know, score with. He opens the door. They bum rush him in. They pistol whip him. They want answers, where's the coke? Well, he didn't have answers, so they shot him in the head. They roll him up in a rug. They take him out to the furnace. And like a Puerto Rican fire log, they throw him into the furnace, right? So while he's in the furnace burning up, they're tossing the apartment, and my old partner and the magician are outside door number one. So they come up with a plan, and they go, if those two cops knock on this door, the girl was to let them in, let them go through the apartment. When they reach a certain point, the Albanians were going to come from behind, shoot my old partner in the head, and then throw them in the furnace, and then leave. Well, the magician talked my partner out of knocking on the door, so obviously they lived. They went outside, and my old partner saw a car parked in a fire hydrant, which belonged to the female. He gave it a ticket, and eventually they were able to trace the whole thing together when the super went missing, and then detectives saw there was a summons written on the car, and they asked him if there was anything peculiar that night. They grabbed the girl. She gave the whole thing up. But it was just that, that the the two of them could have gotten thrown in an oven. Wow, sometimes it's it's better to be lazy than diligent. Yeah, in that particular case, you're 100% right. (laughs) What can I say? Tell me one more story that that when you've done book signings that the audience particularly likes that would be revelatory of what it's really like to be a detective, let's say, per se, not rather rather than a cop. Uh, um, I did a case uh, uh, in Brooklyn where we had these uh, Asian nationals that came over and they were shipping stolen cars to China. And they were doing 30 cars a month. And they were, they were using New York thieves to send the cars out of the country. And, um, I mean, it's a wild story, but, I mean, we had bank robberies. The, the car thieves weren't happy with getting 5000 a car. They were also doing hits on the side. Mm. It, 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 just, it, was, it was a wild ride. I should really write a book about that. Hmm. Let's, let's turn to, um, you know, 20... This, my show's been on the air for... It'll be 30 years at the end of September. Um, and about 20 years ago, I had my only law enforcement person I've ever had on the show. And I asked him, I asked him what might surprise me about being a cop. And he said, and I'll still, I still remember 20 years ago, he says, we cops are people of action, but they made us into people of paperwork. Has that changed? No, you're 100% right. And what's happened is uh, the supervisors have become addicted to this comp stat model with their pin maps. And they get so concerned with playing Dungeons and Douchebags that they, 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 they just totally gloss over the, the human aspect of police work. It, it's become more statistic-driven, 
And to, to your point, when you asked about like that kid that got killed up in up in New York, where they're making a big thing of it that he died in police custody and everything, he was selling loose cigarettes on the street, and he's a pain in the ass. But the reason those cops were there to arrest him was because of that stupid CompStat statistic system. I mean, cops don't want to go out and lock people up for loose cigarettes, but they're making them do these ridiculous things because they get addicted to the statistics. You got these career house mounters, which we call them in the NYPD, which are guys that never were street guys. They were inside guys. But unfortunately, with civil service, if you pass a test, you move up. You know, they really don't care what you did before. It's, hey, well, you passed the sergeant test. Well, you passed the lieutenant test, and away you go. And it's these guys with no street experience that, and also don't know how to talk to people that where you have the disconnect. If what would surprise me if I am, I'm going to ask you that same question. Other than the paperwork thing, what might surprise my listeners? Forget about me. Uh, what might surprise my listeners about what it's really like to be either a cop or a detective, whichever you feel like answering? The sense of humor. A lot of people, when you call the police, most cops, you get the guarded robot, very mm. stoic. Right. Um, yes, sir, no, ma'am, you know, right. get your buzz cut. The reality is, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are all cops that take that job that got pushed around in school and have had a girlfriend, and you can <laughs> kind of figure that out really quick. But and, and we don't like those guys either. And those are usually the summons guys, believe it or not. Mm. Um, they're kind of pariahs within the police departments. Cops don't really like the summons guys. But um, the sense of humor, the ball breaking that goes on, I mean, in my book there's a whole chapter, The Practical Jokes, um, one time a guy, I was going out, and the guy noticed I had changed my slacks. He poured ice-cold water in my seat and gave me a wet ass. <laughs> I, see. I ran over to the pet store. I got 100 crickets. I cut the bag open. I threw it in the back seat of his car, and he did everything. And he, he bombed the car. He wound up having to sell the car to some unsuspecting guy. Another time, a guy in our office that really wasn't liked too well, they noticed he had Rogaine in his, office, in his locker. Mm-hmm. They dumped the Rogaine, and they filled it with wood stains. <laughs> He went, I mean, this guy went batshit crazy. I mean, A for the Rogaine and B had a stain on his head. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, there is a human, there's a lot of ball busting that goes on behind the scenes, but they're not going to show it, you know what I mean? You talked about the summons, guys. I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're not talking about a summons from some felon who's out there. You're talking about traffic summonses? Is that what, there are guys who like, who get off on uh, giving summonses? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, well, the NYPD is a summons quarter. They they can tell they Whoa. can say there's not. There is. You could be Whoa. the greatest cop in the world, solve a homicide, and, and, and two bank robberies. If you didn't have your thirty parking tickets, Whoa. ten moving summonses, and two red lights, you I, were going to get a subpar evaluation, and Whoa. you were going to get a talking to each month. Yes, absolutely. And Jesus, NYPD, and it's probably worse now. Wow. So you're actually you you pay for your salary with with the tickets you write. If you want to look at it that way, sure. <laughs> so, you, now, truth, now, no BS. When you were out there as a cop, did you always meet quota? Did you, uh, you know, or, do, or did you say, to hell with it, I'll live with the subpar of what, what Just you, Vic Ferrari, out on the street, what was your attitude toward those quotas, moving violations, parking tickets, the rest? Truth. Yeah, no, truth. I, I met them because I just, I, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to go places. I didn't want, you know, I'm far from a nonconformist. But, I mean, I, I just, I did it, but there was more than enough people in the Bronx, and, and I'm a Bronx resident, so it's not like I'm an upstate kid that looks down at people that grew up from the Bronx. I lived in the Bronx until I was 42 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, there was more than enough people that didn't have driver's license or the gypsy cabs, the dollar cabs guys, you know, that, that didn't have driver's license, didn't have insurance, 
we'd stop them a couple of times, and you you were more than good to go. Okay. Now you know, I I got to tell you, I have a bachelor's degree in traffic school. I've gotten, I've, okay. I've, gotten, I've gotten more more tickets than anybody. So you know, maybe the most important question from a very selfish perspective is, what's the sm- if I get pulled over for failing to come to a full and complete stop at 2 in the morning in a quiet dis- intersection, which has happened once to me, sure. what's my best way of getting out of this damn thing to hell with your quota? Well, it's funny you should bring that up because now <laughs> as a retired cop, I've lost my superpowers. <laughs> I mean, I've got an, I got, I live in Florida, and I got an, an NYPD retired thing, right. and I don't know if that's going to buy me any slack with a millennial. <laughs> so I had to learn, you know, wear my seatbelt, and I drive speed limit. The bottom line is, if you get pulled over, pull over immediately, roll down all your windows, mm-hmm. shut the car off, mm-hmm. put both hands on the top of the steering wheel. Okay. Yes, officer. Let him, let him go through the motions, and before he steps off to leave. Then you make your pitch. Mm. Let him. It, you want to spend as the little least amount of time with a cop as you have to. Right? <laughs> right? That's when the you truth. You come across like a dog, and you're not really sure is he going to bite me or not. You just kind of stand still. You just you want him to sniff you, and once <laughs> he's at ease, that you're not trying to hurt him. Then, if you can make yourself human to him and say, "Look, you know, I, I, I know what I did." Yeah, with me, the way I was, if. You had a halfway believable story, or you were a working guy, and, 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 and you know you're like you admitted it or said you were sorry. I, I'm not going to bust your balls. It's like there's more than enough people out there to screw with than than some poor guy that's trying to put food on the table. You know what I mean? I get it. You know the usual reason I, I, I frankly I always speed. I'm always driving like 74 and a 65, 100 percent of the time. Um, but when I'm driving faster than that, the real reason and it's worked once. A, guy, a cop pulls me over. And he says, do you realize what you, that you were doing 80 and a 65? Uh, I said, yeah, my wife's going to kill me if I don't get home. And he laughed and he says, I understand. <laughs> and he let me go. Yeah, see what I mean? That, that's what I mean. I mean, you've got to make yourself human. But let them, mm-hmm. you know, don't start your shtick. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let, let him make sure you're not going to hurt him. Once he's got your license and everything and your hands are sitting up there, and can I, can, you know, yeah, can I go to my wallet? Can I get... Once he knows that you're on the up and up and you're not looking to hurt him, because usually most cops get hurt mm. in the initial car stop. When they're mm. coming up to that car, the bad guy, you know, is, is looking to take you out. Once the cop is, is, is okay with you and kind of sees you for who you are, then you make your pitch. Sounds good. Hey, you're listening to work with Marty Nemco. I'm having fun talking with Vic Ferrari. He is a retired police detective in the nation's largest police department, NYPD, New York. And he's written three books. Wait a minute. I thought you were supposed to be a man of action. How the hell are you writing three books? What is this about? How'd you get to write three books? Um, I mean, retired life is great. It's affordable. Well, I became a cop down here in Florida for a short time, which was like having a stroke and having to learn something all over again. And then I went. I, I always wanted to write a book. And all my friends used to tell me, you've got so many good stories. Why don't you put it down? People get a kick out of that. Yeah. And I, I did it as a goof. And the next thing I know, it took off. Right. So, I mean... I'm going to keep riding this train. And you're excellent on the radio, dude. You're very funny. You're, 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 you're very natural. You're very believable. You tell stories concisely. Yeah, you should be doing more of this. This is, this is, this is right up your alley. But, you know, all right, I've got to stick it to you again. You know, you yourself, right before you were to become a cop, you got stopped for speeding, dude. What happened? I was about, uh, just before uh, I took the police, right after I took the police test. So I was waiting, you know, to, to go in. 
And I was speeding, you know, I'm 21 years old, I'm driving with the radio on, you know, no brains. I get pulled over by our, our highway department, which is the equivalent of, you know, the state police. Mm-hmm. And uh, he comes over to the car, he takes my driver's license, and I'm, you know, I'm dropping every name of every cop I've ever met in my life. Right. And this guy is just like, yeah, okay. Highway guys, I mean, they're like the state police. That's what they do. They write tickets. Right. And he walks back to the car, and I'm just sitting there like, oh, crap. What did I do? You know, now I'm going to get this ticket. The person that's investigating me, my investigator hates me to begin with. Investigator for, to, to, to see whether you should be allowed to be a cop or not. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. The, one, the woman that was doing my background check, she, had, she didn't like me. So she just, you know, I was just giving her a reason to put another nail on my coffin. So anyway, mm-hmm. the highway cop comes back, and he goes, Starts cursing at me. He goes, "What are you a smart ass?" And, and I'm just looking at him like, "No, no, no, what?" And he goes, "Do you know?" He goes, "He goes, you think this is funny?" And he shoves the back of my driver's license in my face, which is the organ donor section of your driver's license. Mm-hmm. And on the back of that mylar thing in black sharpie, where what organ was to be donated? Someone had checked off a box and wrote cock on the back of the thing. Jesus. And he goes, you're going to donate your cock? You son of-. And he's just cursing at me. He goes, you know how many lifeless bodies I've transported to the hospital for organ harvest? And I go, sir, 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 my, my, my best friend is a cop. He did this to me. And he goes, where does he work? And I go, the 4-4 precinct. He goes, yeah, all right. They're crazy over there. He goes, slow the freak down. And he throws the license in my face. And I was like, I call my buddy up. I go, you stupid son of a bitch. You almost cost me, cost me my job. And he couldn't stop laughing. I mean, we still laugh about it to this day. But, I mean, I really thought that was going to set me back in my police career. I love it. I'm going to give out the phone number in case somebody wants to have a crack at you, dude. So, okay. um, dear listeners, uh, you're listening to Work with Marty Nemco. I'm having a great time talking with Vic Ferrari, uh, retired cop and then promoted to detective, right, author of three books, including... NYPD, that is New York Police Department, Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department. If you've got a question for him, this is your only shot at it. I'm using, you know, I'm from the Bronx, too, so I'm using my Bronx accent. <laughs> you can, you can, you know, you want some sausage and peppers, dude? Okay, I won't give you sausage and peppers, but I'll tell you what, listeners, the first to use, use guys to call is going to get a free copy of my book, Careers for Dummies, all right? The phone number here, work with Marty Nemco and KELW. 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. That's not the word I really talk. But anyway, <laughs> how was that? Was that, did I still have my New York accent? You do. Yeah, no question about it. Okay, but let's say now I'm your kid. And I'm saying, Daddy, I'm thinking of becoming a cop, and then I want to be just like you. I want to get to be a detective. What would you tell me? Uh, the, wor- the world's changed so much since what I got hired. It's not... It's not chic to be a cop anymore. I mean, I, I know your listeners in San Francisco are going to hate me for this, but the silver ponytails have taken over academia, and they're basically, you know, question authority. It's always been that way, but it's way worse now. Cops have such a hard time now because these young people are indoctrinated. The cops are no good. They're this, they're that. We don't have to listen to them. And I mean... For a selfish reason, I probably, if I had it, I don't have children, but if I did, I'd probably tell them to stay clear of it. But if they wanted to, I mean, but for society, we need, we need cops. We need the police. We need them to be proactive. We need them to keep us safe. I mean, uh, it, it's, I don't know. I, you know, my friend's kid always keeps asking me that, and I, I always struggle with it. Hmm. You know, you still seem like a relatively young guy. Why did you retire? 
I retired at 41 years old. I mean, Whoa. 20 and out. And I, 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 I thought about staying, but things were changing. And, and it's one of those things, and I'm sure your listeners can relate to wherever you guys work. Everybody outlives their usefulness. Hmm. You just do. Even if you're good at what you do, new regimes come in, things change. And I worked in a really good office with really good detectives, but things were changing. There were new, there were new people coming in. It, it was a new agenda. They were going in different directions. And I said to myself, I can change. I can go this way, but do I want to? Mm. You know, I mean, I was financially okay. Mm. Um, I knew I could do something else. And I wanted to do something else. It, it was just time. And it's like, I'm not going to hang around and be miserable and cry about, you know, shame on me if I stay in a place that I don't want to be. Well, you know, you you were certainly in a place where I wanted you to be, which is on this radio show tonight. And I thought you did a really good job. I mean, you know, I curse like you do, and I don't know if, you know, we didn't cross the line. I think you did just fine, but you are really a good interview. And uh, so it was been a, it was a pleasure having talked with you. Um, I'm, this is Vic Ferrari I've been talking with. He is the author of three books. I'll mention just two. The book that kind of catapulted him was NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. He has a new one out called the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. Vic Ferrari, thanks so much for being my guest on Work with Marty Nemco. Thank you, Marty. Appreciate it. Be well. Okay. So now we turn to you. Um, if you have a work-related problem of any sort, whether, whether it's blue-collar or white-collar, self-employed, government-employed, private sector, the only common denominator is you've got a problem related to your work life. You're stuck. You would like some advice, especially because it's free. The phone number here for what I call a workover at Work with Marty Nemco and KALW 415. 841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. I want to talk about two different kinds of people who I have as clients um, that I haven't really discussed much with you over the years. One are people who are successful but still unhappy, and the other are people who are dismissed or demoted and dispirited. I'm going to start with the success ones. Um... Some of my clients are financially successful, yet they're still unhappy. And, you know, some listeners learn more when I, you know, just tick off the tips, but others learn more when the tips are embedded in a context, in a story. So I've created a composite story. A composite story is made up of real true things, but not of one person. I've taken elements from different real people, and I've put them together in a story so it's kind of coherent. It's 8 p.m., and Adam has already gone through more than half a bottle of expensive wine. Not that he can tell the difference between it and two-buck chuck, but such purchases made him feel he was getting some compensation for his lifetime of hard work, successful work. Adam started his life with no spoon in his mouth. His father was a cutter in a raincoat factory. His mother was a part-time bookkeeper. But Adam worked hard, kept displaying that pleasant demeanor that corporate America requires, And at age 45, he's at his career peak, senior vice president at a mid-tier company, making with bonus $275,000 a year. But as he sits with his wine, he wonders why he feels sad. Like his dad, Adam suffers from a lifelong predisposition to mild sadness, but that's been exacerbated by his feeling that his work was only of modest importance, that his relationship with his wife and kids well, not bad, is far from what gets sold in sappy movies and novels. His hobbies of softball and group motorcycle rides are fine, but barely move the needle 
on his overall happiness meter. Adam wrote and wrote in his journal. And for months, his entries included no proposed solutions. And then one day he wrote, I've heard it so often, but instead of endless focusing on what you don't have or wish you were, the answer is in gratitude for what you do have, taking modest steps to do better, and to be a kinder person. And corny though that may sound, from that day on, Adam made a point of feeling grateful that he lived in a reasonably nice home with a reasonably nice wife and reasonably nice kids, that he could get into his reasonably nice car every day to get to his quite nice job. In turn, that made it easier for Adam to take a more moderate approach to his self-improvement. He accepted his essential self as is, for example, that he's more operational than strategic, and he did just little things to keep growing, ask a colleague a question, read an article, learn from his mistakes, sometimes. His gratitude for his life also made him kinder to everyone, including co-workers. Nothing fancy, just, for example, listening more diligently. And his newly gained cosmic perspective moved him to replace his hard-driving make-a-number mentality with a balance of prophets and people. So that's a little story with... Um, Um, A couple of practical takeaways, as simple and timeless as they are. Ultimately, as I look back on my 5,600 clients, sometimes it's those simple things, like gratitude, be kinder, and instead of radically reinventing yourself or radically reinventing your career, making just little incremental easy fixes, easy changes, read an article, ask a question, that kind of thing. So those are no magic pills. They never are. Um, But those are my thoughts on... Um, being successful and yet still unhappy. Uh, I'm going to go to the other, uh, the flip side of that is I have a story that I've created uh, about people who are dismissed, demoted, and dispirited. But I want to go to the phones, and we'll do that. Uh, but I'll first give out the phone number. If you have a work-related problem, the phone number here at Work with Marty Nemco for what I call a workover, I will try to help you with your work problem. 415 841 4134. That's 415 841 4134. And to the phones, welcome to the show. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Hi. I, I, I guess I, I first I wanted to say that uh, I, I'm kind of continually amazed by you and your show. You have so much wisdom and uh, genuine concern for people and the spiritual side of work. And I think that's one of the reasons I like to listen to your show, so I just wanted to say thank you, first of all, for that. And I thank you, but you have no idea, no matter how long I do this, I live for feeling like I'm making a difference, and so your words mean a lot to me, truthfully. Please, wow. Please continue. Well, well, listen, I, I just wanted to take a chance. I'm not sure I really fit into your show, but I'm I'm, I'm hoping I do. I, I, I have had a conflicted relationship with work. I, I grew up working hard with family of an immigrant father and uh, I have this idea for a company and I live in this place that's encouraging innovation and I seem to be at a point where I have the idea developed and I'm kind of lost in the wilderness I don't really know what to do next Great. Marty I thought maybe you might I I, uh, I have intended to trust a lot of people in my work thing I have had good ideas and this has been my thing. I might not get along with people, but gosh, I have a good idea, and so I'd like to figure out how not to screw it up and what I should do next. 
That's right up my wheelhouse. I'm just, are you worried about sharing it? Most, most pe- many people have shared ideas over the air and, and they don't get stolen. People, it takes an awful lot of drive and moxie to, to see an idea through to completion, especially if it's not an idea you came up with. So you're probably pretty safe, but you can never guarantee. But I can probably be of much more help to you if you could tell me what the specific idea is. Can you do that? Uh, sure, I'll take a shot. Uh, I don't have any kind of formal elevator pitch kind of thing worked out yet, but I could say that it's a it's a visualization platform uh, kind of for viewing the whole of any kind of information you'd want to ask about. I know it sounds probably hugely ambitious, but it's a way of visualizing information kind of in, in a place so that it would make sense kind of instantly because humans are good at seeing and, uh, you know, understanding things spatially. So that's the idea that you can pack a lot of information into that. And so it's some of the difficulty is figuring out since it's so ambitious, how do I pick a small part of that would that would uh, be a good place to start? How okay. how can I reduce this in size so that it's not overwhelming? I can sell a piece of it, not you know pitch it to smart investor guys in a room. How do I make it small enough and compact enough and all right, let's try, to, let's, let's try to take some bites at the salami. So it strikes me as analogous almost to what Microsoft did with its Office suite. You have the same general interface, when you're, whether you're using Word or Excel or um, Access or whatever, or PowerPoint. It's, you know, you've got these menus. It's, it's, a, it's a, like a standard template. Is that what you're describing, but, a, but in a more visual interface? You know, I, I I think I'd I'd hesitate to say more. I think it's just it, it would be better as a general thing. I I don't okay. so much need help with the idea as much as kind of how, mm. how do I take the next step if I've been protective of something? How do I take yeah. the next step? That what what to, I was doing here, my first. Others. Yep. What I was doing here was not talking about the product. I was trying. One of the best ways that we, that people sell a movie when you're a scriptwriter is you say it's like this, but that. So by analogizing to to something like Microsoft Word's Microsoft Suite, you're creating something that's easier for people to understand. You know, like in a movie script, it could be Godzilla meets Harry meets Sally. You know, when when like it's a movie yeah. that combines Godzilla with Harry when Harry met Sally. So I wasn't implying to change your product, but that said, because that's going to make it memorable in a soundbite. There's a reason, for example, that DoorDash is selling better than Postmates in terms of delivery services or caviar, because it's memorable. DoorDash somehow is easy to say, alliterative, and that, maybe more than anything, is what's enabling it to succeed. So you need to have a an elevator pitch that essentializes it and makes it memorable. So that's one potential takeaway. But beyond that... Um, do you have you done the standard things, which is a SWOT analysis? There's got to be some kind of competition. For, you know, there is a, the whole. Uh, there's a whole field for 20 years. I don't remember the guy's name at Stanford who founded his whole thing about visual presentation. I get every day uh, visual, you know, visualize, visualized presentations from something called Statistica. Um, yeah. Have you looked carefully? I get resumes that are that are presented as visualizations all the time in yeah. law, in law in every courtroom. You see what they call demonstrative evidence. Have you done a careful analysis of your strengths and weaknesses relative to the competition? 
Uh, I've done. I, I haven't done it in as formal a way as you're describing, but I have. I've done quite a bit of research. I. I, I think what I'm. I, what I'm developing is unique enough that it would stand as distinct from these things. That's kind of what what the draw would be. Is that it's clearly something else. It includes that, but it is a different way of looking at things, and just without having to describe it. That's as fine. But you do need, you know, what you, you said you want to impress investors. Investors can't yeah. say, I sort of did that, I didn't do it that systematically. Nah, that doesn't work. You've got to yeah. say, here is the realm of the competition. The competition falls into three yeah. categories. Category A, or these are the two major players. Category B, or these are the three major players. Category C, these are, and here is how mine is different and better, or at least can get a slice of the pie. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Meeting meeting their standards for for yeah. due diligence, and it's reasonable standards. It's not unreasonable. And the the other sure. thing is to you you normally want to do a a low cost pilot where you are you are right. demoing this with some user in a, a little experiment. So, for example, if there's a standard kind of a, a, a an interface or a platform, whatever you want to call it and you compare it with yours in one particular vertical. I'm just going to make something up out of left field. Dentistry. Let's say, for example, the dentists in dental school are learning various ways of doing procedures. Yeah. And for you to take that one vertical and you to take the standard method by which they teach uh, maxillofacial surgeries of a certain kind yep. and that, you show how it's taught in that standard, with that standard platform, and then you yep. show it in yours, now... You can you have something to show, and most importantly, yeah. you can build out organically. You start with one vertical market, the vertical market you think is best suited to your visualized platform. Do your proof of concept, market directly to that, so you've got a targeted market, and then when there is success, then you can say to your investors, you can see yeah. we've got a growth we've got a growth plan here. We we start in this market, and then if it works with proof of concept, we can expand organically right. out from I there. How does right. that feel? It's, that sounds brilliant. It's like the specific is the universal, like when you're writing. <laughs> well, it's exactly the same. That's brilliant. Okay, that, that's a great suggestion. Thank you. And I thank you for calling work with Marty Nemco. I wish you the All best. Right. Okay. Thanks. It's a little hard to do it when I didn't know exactly what the hell his product was, but I did the best I could. I'll give out the phone number again. If you've got a work-related problem of any sort, um, 415 841 Four one three four. But do me a favor. If you're calling in with a work problem, please be be specific so I can be more help. Four one five eight four one four one three four. Let's go back to the phones. Welcome to the show. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi, it's you. Are you still there? Last time. Okay, I guess that person is gone. So what I want to do is, is uh, I promised you that I was going to um, share. Uh, I just talked about the the significant category of people who are successful both even financially and status in terms of the interest of their job but are still unhappy and I kind of created a story a composite story made up of real life nuggets from different people um, to give a couple of tips about that so I'm going to do the same now for um, the, the many people who have been dismissed or demoted and are dispirited if it was the first time it would have been bad enough but it was Damien's third termination in just the last 10 years. Sure, in one of them, he was part of a group layoff, but he knew that if an employer wants to keep a good employee, they usually find a way. Now at age 38, 
with an employment story that wouldn't make most employers salivate, Damien sat scared and dispirited. Damn it, what do I do well? I'm good at big picture stuff, but they're not going to let me do that. I'm not high level enough. I got to do the damn details. And I screw up just often enough to annoy people. So I get dumped. I'm not stupid, but I'm not exceptional in any one thing. Maybe I'm not coming up with anything because I've spent so much time in this damn Silicon Valley. If you're not a software engineer, you got to be a salesperson, and I'm neither. They hire me because I can sell myself in interviews, but just as a crap-level coordinator, or if I'm lucky, a baby-level manager. Maybe I'm viewing my options too narrowly. I mean, there have to be jobs, even in Silicon Valley, that's outside of high-tech. Biotech? Nah. That requires too much technical chops. Maybe something more humanistic. There have to be a hell of a lot of people in soul-free Silicon Valley who are filled with alienation and misery. Hmm. Maybe I should do something soft. Human. And so Damien googled humanistic careers, helping careers, terms like that. And he discovered a career he hadn't heard of before. Employee Assistance Program Manager. He learned that employee assistance programs provide large organizations' employees with counseling on personal problems that are impeding their work, like relationship, substance abuse, even depression. And having experience as a manager, but better with people than with details, Damien felt that that was a fit. But is my BS in management and some little bit of management experience enough to land me a job in the Silicon Valley company as an EAP manager? Alas, Google searching revealed that EAP management is a small field and competition for jobs is indeed fierce. Many aspiring EAP managers have a master's in human resources and often have worked in HR within a company. Well, sure, people with a strong network can sometimes leapfrog into EAP without all that. But Damien was never much of a schmoozer, thinking, usually wrongly, that hard work and competence would be enough. But he was daunted by the time and cost of getting a master's. So he decided to first try doing a thorough job search. Yeah, by posting a solid LinkedIn profile and writing custom responses to advertised jobs, but also by getting involved in the two relevant professional associations, the Employee Assistance Trade Association and the Society for Human Resources Management. He would attend local meetings, join a committee or two so people could interact with them on an ongoing basis, and attend their national conference to learn on-target skills and make job connections. Damien figured that if a few months of that didn't bear fruit, he would enroll in one of the few one-year online master's programs in human resources, the one at Golden Gate University. There, he'd commit himself to networking so as to develop real relationships with fellow students and instructors, because even if that didn't lead to a job, he would have made friends with people who shared his career interest. While Damien remains nervous, he's moved from hopeless despondency to cautious optimism that his future will be brighter than his past. Okay, the takeaway... The following tips for the demoted or dismissed and despondent were embedded in that story. One, in choosing a new career, you needn't put too fine a point on it. Damien knew only that he wanted to leverage his management experience with his interest in being more what he called humanistic. Google searching can often then quickly identify new specific options. Two, before enrolling even for a one-year master's, it may be worth trying a quality job search which often should include getting involved in your field's professional association. Key to that working is getting on a committee 
so people can see you in action multiple times. That makes them more likely to be willing to open a career door for you. Three, while most master's degrees take two years or longer, a careful search can often yield a one-year program. Four, alas, even though the unemployment rate's at a 50-year low, the competition for good jobs can be fierce. Competence is needed, but networking to open career doors may be more important than ever. And finally, while there are no guarantees, even a person who's been terminated multiple times has a realistic basis for hope if he or she looks inward to learn lessons from what he or she should do differently and if he or she works extra hard to land that first job in a more promising career. Many people, successful and not, search for a shiny new fix for their malaise, but at least from where I sit, the best fix for most subclinical unhappiness is indeed things like gratitude, incremental self-improvement, and kindness. Okay, so those are some thoughts about um, what to do if you've been dismissed, demoted, or dispirited. I have time for one more phone call, so if you uh, want to, if you're the procrastinator and like to uh, me to try to help you solve your work problem, the phone number here, work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. I mentioned the uh, the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. I just came across my desk. Um, a all-time record of 157 million 288,000 people are employed in July. It's an all-time record. And um, the unemployment rate, uh, 3.6 or 3.7%, is the, uh, let me see, I don't want to read all this stuff. But anyway, uh, and wage growth is up 3.2% a year, year over year. And it is the, uh, let's see, it's at least a year where every month the wage growth has been at an annual rate of 3% or more. So it's a good time to be looking for a job. Now, you know, I like to stress the positive and the negative, um, both. Again, this balance thing I have. Um, one of my favorite people to watch is uh, and read is a guy named Charles Hugh Smith. He's been on the show once, and he wrote an interesting article uh, just uh, two weeks ago uh, called Automation and the Crisis of Work. And here were some of the major points he made. Between half and two-thirds of the workforce have been obsoleted by technology. A friend recently described that the technology is being deployed to increase the yields and reduce labor in organic sustainable farming, drones that monitor the water and nutrient needs of crops, with sensors and relay the data to drip irrigation systems. That killed a lot of jobs. We normally think of organic sustainable farming as being very labor-intensive, but it's, even that's becoming less so. As for training students to code, you know, to program, Many of those tasks are being automated as well. Even as we're wringing our hands about the potential for individually targeted advertising to sway elections, we also have to ask, why should any advertiser pay marketing firms to distribute bulk emails and mailers, buy TV, radio, and print advertisements, when an essentially automated technology can craft a data-driven, micro-targeted pitch to individuals? His point is that it's not just blue-collar jobs that are being obsoleted, but well-paying white-collar jobs as well. Charles Hugh Smith also writes that the jobs that are being created that create this low unemployment rate are low-pay, contingent, that means part-time temp, insecure service jobs that cannot support a middle-class life, let alone an accumulation of capital. Smith says that if we look at the gig economy that's arisen to staff on-demand services like Uber and Lyft and Grubhub, 
There's low earnings, no benefits, and the costs and risks of auto ownership being offloaded from the corporation to individuals. Smith also says that the idea that profits are going to pay for universal basic income is simply not realistic. Even if we taxed all the big tech corporations at 75%, that would yield only $100 billion, which is one-tenth of UBI's minimum cost, notwithstanding what Andrew Yang says. And as he's discussed in his books, there's another crisis of work that UBI doesn't solve, and that is that most people want and need the purpose, meaning, and structure of a job, a positive social role, a way to gain respect, and an avenue of control of one's life, a source of dignity, a means of getting ahead. Smith also says that technology, like natural selection, has no goal. Technology doesn't have this humanistic drive to employ humans, save the planet, or any other goal we might choose. In our current economic system, technology is mainly aimed at maximizing profits. And the surest way to reduce costs is to replace costly humans with automated tools. And finally, Smith says that if we want technology to help us create gainful work, we have to set that goal and create incentives other than maximizing financial profits. Maybe one first step might be to broaden our definition of the word profit from the purely financial one to one that includes utility and value for local and global individuals and communities. Anyway, um, people calling in, but now it's too late and I don't have time to take the call, so please call back earlier next week so that uh, I have time for, uh, for you. So that is Work with Marty Nemco for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, and, of course, all of you for listening and calling in. Please join me again next Thursday at 7. You can call in for a workover. Plus my wife, Dr. Barbara Nemco, and I, she's the Napa County Superintendent of Schools, a special back-to-school show on reinventing education from preschool to graduate school and how to make the most of higher ed as it is, especially to enhance your career. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't.